0: honor the Nonprofits, a show where we discuss current events and social issues from a skeptical and humanist perspective so with that being said let me get rid of the uh, the incidentals uh, the nonprofit is a product of the ACA a 501 c3 nonprofit organization and we're dedicated to the separation of religion and government and promoting positive atheism please tell us what you like what you don't like in the comments below and email us at nonprofits at atheist-community.org. Find us on our fan discord at tiny.cc slash ACA discord. Like, subscribe, hit that fucking bell, ring that fucking bell. Um, on all the YouTubes, please. So, hello, howdy. We have a new face and some um, recurring. Um, Arden, welcome. Hi, yeah,
1: thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, and we got Johnny and Jenna. Um, We've got a few things coming up. Anyone want to uh, share anything um, extraordinary before we get started?
2: Arden, you first.
1: Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, yeah, actually, I have one thing I want to plug. If uh, y'all have seen around the ACA, Katie Montgomery, Uh, She and I are starting a show together pretty soon. We're hoping to air a pilot in the next like two weeks or so. Uh, It's going to be around uh, having skeptical conversations on the topic of trans rights and being trans. And we're really hoping to have a open space where we can have anyone call in who wants to have an honest conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about that.
2: That's awesome. That sounds
3: sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Definitely need more of that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Colin shows are fun because it's it's wild cards every week, right? Mm-hmm. You never know what you're going to get, and sometimes it, it's nice when those 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 conversations connect and there's a, a, a coming together of the minds, and that's that's really wonderful.
2: Yeah, even if you don't agree,
3: I, it's still nice that there's a connection there.
2: Yeah, I agree. Like it, it, especially if there is definitely an atmosphere or a forum where it can be more of a constructive conversation rather than just mm. you know the. Random call-in is fine, but just something that's more um, c- uh, constructive and can be a bit more critical but not harsh. And you can actually actively learn something and listen. So, yeah, thank you for that, Arden. Awesome. You and Katie, I'm sure, mm. would do great with it.
0: Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Anything new with uh, with you, Johnny, or you, Jenna? Uh,
3: I'll I'll say. I don't know about Jenna. I know that Jenna's been busy, but Jenna can talk about whatever Jenna wants to talk about. Um <laughs> i was I was on uh talk heathen last week I had a lot of fun I've been looking forward to that for a while so I think that means I've been on all the AC the currently going ACA shows um, maybe some that are in abeyance pending oh. the end of the quarantines so I feel like I can just kind of lie down now and and uh wait for new shows to come out so I can Slide annoy Denver. our executive producer yeah, <laughs> yeah those two yeah <laughs> yeah but it, we had a good time i got to wear a, a new shiny jacket and um had some interesting calls and um know, yeah. so tune into that if you want to see me make an ass out of myself or not whatever or, you decide right sure sure but yeah
2: uh yeah i have been busy so i'm glad to get myself back in the back in the mix of things, uh, I was last on secular, sex, secular sexuality, excuse me. Um, unfortunately, I, I, did, I didn't have a chance to do it with uh, Vila Bianca or um, um, Christy, but um, just as great I had our other co-hosts of nonprofits with uh, Rudy and Puck um, uh, were on the show with me. So I was a special guest with uh, our co-host for nonprofits, so it was even as great. Uh, So I had the opportunity to do that. Hopefully I can go back to being on secular sexuality again sometime in the future. So that was fun, but I'm always just as happy right here at home.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, no, that was great. Um, your first, um, time on an ACA call-in show, um, that was a little bit, how, how did that go? That was, it it went well. I mean, what what I saw went well.
2: Yeah, Um, no, thank you. I mean, uh, I mean i kind of thought of it as not too different since you know you, you and i multi are both moderators on acd on the discord yeah. server so it's not too much thinking of it like that just communicating and answering questions or asking questions to people in like the voice channels and stuff so it wasn't too much different um uh, but i guess you could say it, you know the level of comfortability was there um very interesting you know calls um some a bit more disheartening the others, but still encouraging um, and still just as enjoyable as anything else. So definitely looking forward to doing it again or any other show.
0: <laughs> yeah, we definitely get practice with new people coming in, people with um, odd ideas coming into the Discord yeah. and, and wanting to discuss them in a civil manner. So yeah, I can see that, sure.
2: Really? Yeah.
0: So um, we've got some really interesting um, topics and articles to get t- to today. Um, let me go over them really quick, I'm just kind of give us an overview. We're going to start um, talking about Fritz Bergman. Um, this is coming, first article is coming from us from um, the, from Politico. This is from February, February 26th. Um, got some other articles about him. He's um, a bit of a bigot. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about cancel culture or consequence culture um, and um, what we're seeing um, after the, uh, the first of the year. Um, we will be doing a little bit of a looking back on Michel de Montaigne, uh, the mayor of um, Bordeaux, France for a while. And then we're going to end um, with a little bit of a looking back segment on Daryl Davis. Um, so that is the plans for today. Johnny, you were planning on, um, you had some things to say about um, Mr. Mr. Berg, mm. what is it? Bergren. Ber- Bergrin,
3: his yeah. Bergrin, his yes. his, fam- his family was Scandinavian, uh, and then they came to the United States, um, I think when he was a child. Uh, I think that's right. But I, I don't know why I, why I know that. I didn't look up where his name came from, but as I was reading through his work and as I was reading through articles about him that was covered. It's not it's not relevant who cares where your ancestors were from if you're an asshole like this. Uh they ought to close up Scandinavia if if uh they're cranking out people like that, but of course that's not that's not true. Now um, Mr. Fritz Dr. Fritz Bergren is a very interesting person, um, popped into the news. Um, he has a PhD in history from the University of Miami, and he is a State Department official going back to 2009. He's listed as an FSO, as a Foreign Services Office Officer. Um, according to a directory that was viewed by Politico, Berggrin is currently assigned to a State Department unit that handles special immigrant visas for Afghans, which can't be good for the Afghans, trying to get special immigrant visas. He's also had previous positions, including a financial management officer at the U.S. Embassy in Bahrain. That's uh, They found that in an older directory. The guy has a blog, and this is why he came into the news. And he's not alone. There are probably many people that share his kind of thinking in the foreign services. I imagine most don't. Because his ideas are very radical, um, regressively radical, I would argue, and I would call him an, an extremist. But you decide. His website is called Blood and Faith, and I'm I'm hesitant to mention his website, but I think the folks that watch this show are not likely to be swayed into his kind of thinking. But you might find it interesting to look at it for yourselves anyway, just to know that there are people like Dr. Bergren out there in government. So he has a kind of a manifesto. It's listed under the about. And I, I went through it, uh, the first six minutes of it. I didn't do the whole thing. He t- takes a break and then he goes on. Um, he says he's not nuts. He's a world traveler. He says that the secular world is a cult. How else could it be a cult since entropy is working in reverse? He talks about how irrational abiogenesis is. He says there is no such thing as freedom of speech. Uh, anytime you you speak out, you are essentially canceled. How nice that we are going to be talking about that later as well. He says he calls on his viewers and his readers to to wake up, or they will deal with you harshly, because you'll wake up too late to stop them. Mm. Uh, the alternative, of course, is don't wake up at all, and you'll just be a Borg, like in Star Trek. That's not me. That's him. Borg. Um, he said the foundation for his resistance is the creation story, where man was made perfect at creation. And it's the devil's narrative that the world is improving over time. It's an anti-biblical view. He talks about globalism, and according to his biblical worldview, he looks at the Tower of Babel, the Book of Daniel. He compares everything to the Roman Empire, how um, we don't really want diversity in this world. What we want is you to kiss the ring and he compares it to the Roman empire where you can have whatever religion you want. But in the end you have to kiss the ring and give the Romans their due. Uh, He talks a lot about Christian persecution, Jews sold out to the world system. And that's why not, not the chosen people while they killed the Christ. And nationalism is resistance to globalism. We have no King, but Jesus. He is the king of our bloodlines, and he calls for Christian nation-states to rise up as Babel fails.
0: So the guy is all in on this. Arden, you, you look like you're, you're, you're chomping at the pit there.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny because the first note that I took is uh, that uh, this this guy literally sounds like the meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where he's like, Got all the different pins on the board, and he's like pointing to all the different pieces, saying, "Oh, you see, like like very conspiratorial." Yeah, yeah. it, it, was, it was honestly difficult to read uh, his little manifesto because he, there were so many different little citations and extrapolations that he was making from them that I was having a hard time like following. He he sounded very convinced of his own points, but I I was like, I can't even really wrap my head around like how you've come to be so convinced of these conclusions. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: It's a lot to digest. It's heavy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go go ahead. I'm I'm
3: (laughs) I really apologize, but I just wanted to say Mm. actually to everybody, but Arden was, was talking. He's a smart person. I don't think he's Mm. a stupid person. That's the thing.
0: Well,
3: what's your impression? All of you. That's my thought was he's a smart guy. This is how smart people can go way off the deep end. (sighs)
0: Ph.D. in history. okay. Um, it's it's a Ph.D. Um, so he spent five to ten years working on a dissertation on um, a ruler in Colombia, or no, excuse me. Um, yeah, that was right. Not no Cuba. Excuse me, a Cuban, a Cuban dictator. That was his dissert. That's what he spent his five to ten years on. To give him, I mean, I'm a smart person, sure, but it, um, some of the things that he's saying don't make much sense to me you know things like the whole thing about putting pushing entropy backwards and i mean it's just like no we all have cars that work that's because entropy works forwards you know things like that so i don't know
2: no i i I would push back on the idea of leaving him Smart because I mean we have varying um, definitions of what a smart person of what's a level of smartness is. I mean, sure, I, I guess I would classify him as very learned. Um, he certainly has mm. the degree and education and um, whatever background and degree and education that he has. But it, it is blatantly obvious to us and I'm sure our audience that this is not any type of level of critical. Uh, <laughs> intelligence that we would identify as something that's, you know, based in reality <laughs> at all.
1: Yeah. Has
3: anyone read Mein Kampf here? I scanned. Me too. I read a couple chapters. Uh, it re. I'm not calling him a Nazi, although he says a lot of nasty things about Jews, and bloodlines, and impurities, and and like such as, but. When I read Mein Kampf, what I, what I noticed about it was it was a lot of analysis, a lot of detail, not necessarily properly connected together in a rational way. And it was based upon a whole lot of like supposition. It's not based Mm. upon any facts. It's based upon a conclusion that's floating out there. And then like Lego pieces, he just builds it in Mm -hmm. Austin. There's a place called the cathedral of junk. It's a tower that I hope I can all take you there uh, after the quarantine um, but it's it's wheelchairs it's walkers it's CDs it's chicken wire and it's a whole bunch of stuff and it was like three or four stories tall until I don't know like the fire department said they had to take it down but that's what his stuff reads like and that's what mineconf reads like as well
0: hmm.
2: so a, lot some... oh. a lot of post hoc
0: a lot of post hoc rationalization it sounds like you're you've got a target and you're trying to work towards it Yeah. Yeah.
1: I kind of wanted to uh, bounce off of what Jenna was saying. I totally agree. I think you could probably classify this guy as learned, but like I found two massive holes in his manifesto just from like a quick read through being that one, his entire theory is dependent on your bloodline being completely pure. And if you think about this, even going back to the times of Jesus, 2000 years, your bloodline gets exponentially bigger every single generation. So the the likelihood of you actually having a pure bloodline is so absolutely astronomically insane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the other point was that he said uh, one of the main reasons he cared so much about this was, uh, you know, about uh, wanting the white Christian man to rise up or whatever, and how the left and the liberals or the establishment—that's just objectively not true. It, the 117th Congress is the most diverse Congress we've ever had. At still, though, white men of some sort of Christian denomination completely are in charge of the vast majority of our Congress. So, so
2: yeah, it, it screams the question, like, what level of control are you afraid of? Like, are you mm-hmm. afraid of losing the all-white male control that for centuries this country has continuously and still continues to hold? Or are you afraid of more minority representation, more diversity, obviously? Well, you'll
0: lose your um, privilege if you start treating people everyone equally and mm-hmm. giving everyone equal there representation. But yeah, Arden, you know I, I did a quick search and I found that it takes um about a hundred generations to go back. you know, each time your your tree gets bigger, and at a hundred generations, we all share at least one common ancestor. So by that logic, three thousand years ago, um, we are all the same family.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. There's there's absolutely no way you could have a pure uncontaminated bloodline. That's absurd. Uh, well, so I, Johnny, did you had some quotes from this guy, didn't oh you? Oh God. I've got
3: so many quotes. <laughs> it's Buckle it's up. yeah, I've got so I I have a tendency to go down rabbit holes and I and, and I hate I hate reading this kind of stuff, but I, I'm mesmerized by it too. Uh, it's like watching bad movies. Big bad movie fan. The Room is, a, is an easy one. There's a million other ones. I think I've mentioned them. Um, Tales from the Quad Dead Zone. These movies where they fail on every level and I can't stop watching. Neil Breen is a true artist for those of you who love the Breen. But let's just say this. Let me just read some of these wonderful quotes. The goal of the left is to destroy blood and faith so that, parentheses, Marxist religion alone becomes master and enslaver of all, Berggren writes. Europeans must reclaim their blood and faith as blacks are proud and Hispanics have very strong blood identity organizations. I may have read a little bit into the tone there. But um, another one, Antifa slash BLM is not the resistance, they are the establishment. He writes in bullet points on a September 12th, 2020 post that includes a video segment. Quote, the resistance could be white men and Christians if we man up to it. And then he goes on, the revival of Christian nation states is required for the advancement of truth. There is no substitute for the public acclamation uh, acclamation of Jesus Christ as the King and Lord of a nation. Oh, let me read this one last one, please. October 24th, he wrote, The demon god of diversity. The world gasps in horror with each new endangered subspecies, but cheers the elimination of white culture from whole regions of the earth. This will not stop until white people stop it. We have been handmaidens to our own demise. Oh, goodness. So there's that.
0: So, yeah, we we don't have any... Um evidence of him using government equipment or spending government time on this, right? I mean, this, so this is supposed, this is protected speech, isn't
2: it? Right. You just brought me that because I was just going to say, I I can't fathom that this guy, he he is currently assigned and in charge of, you know, handling the visas of Afghans. And yet he is propagating this type of speech on his own private platform, no less. So understandably so. But to your point, Multi, there there is no, there seems to be no, consequence, there seems to be no visible uh, future disciplinary action towards this type of rhetoric that he is exposing, due to the fact that he has that protection under the First Amendment, which basically uh, implies that um, he's under that protection, uh, because of the uh, uh, he's there, their uh, their, uh, employers, excuse me, I'm fumbling, um, does not Uh, For reasons of not uh, impeding on anyone that is uh, dictating or employers do not dictate anyone uh, based on their religious views. That's Mm -hmm. some type of, of course, I've said that verbatim it's not word for word. But under that First Amendment, you know, especially under the federal government, he's a federal government employee, he it doesn't seem like he will realistically face any type of disciplinary action just based on whatever he's, you know, or, just, yeah, you know.
0: Like, and, and if he, if, if he has been playing by the rules, mm-hmm.
2: uh,
0: then uh, I, I, I don't know that uh, him being uh, uh, in charge of these visas would be appropriate posting for him. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. We don't know if, if he is able to compartmentalize these and do his job, and his blogging separately, I, we
3: don't know. Well, and that's 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 quite right. We don't know, and I suspect it's difficult for him to separate these views from the, his 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 determination of whether a person it, it should be entitled to receive a visa to come to this country.
0: How can you? How can you separate those?
3: I don't know. I don't think yeah. you. I don't think you really could. I mean. Unless he's very mechanical about it, i don't I don't know what level of discretion he has. Hmm. if he If he follows a checklist and they meet that checklist, maybe he has no choice but to do it. and he grumbles under his breath as he does it. I think he's entitled to do that as long as he follows the rules. Um uh, what I found was, um, if he is, he has the ability to express his uh, free speech, however, it's, it's limited, whether he's in the country, out of the country, whether he's doing it on duty, whether he's doing it off duty. Uh, there are different conditions for that because public employees, federal, federal employees do still have First Amendment speech rights. And I think he's riding that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is between him and someone like Kim Davis, right, who says, I won't do this for religious reasons. Now, imagine if he were to say that I will not grant a visa because my religious... My religious beliefs—I don't know. I don't even know what 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 his goals would be. How would he discriminate? What doesn't he want to bring about the end of of mankind so that a new Christian world can can arise? I don't, hmm. I'm not sure.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also curious what the process would be like if if a if an Afghan person. I, I'm sorry, that may not be the correct phraseology for someone who's from Afghanistan, but who's applying for a visa gets denied and it's maybe for you know a, in a discriminatory way what's the what I don't know what the process would be like for them to even appeal to that sort of thing so I do kind of feel like he's got like another level of you know protection where even the people he's dealing with don't if he were to do anything there's yeah, I mean, seemingly which, no
0: recourse. which we have no um, which we have no uh evidence of we we, we uh, what we right. have evidence of is uh some um some very bigoted, um, I don't know what even to call um, blood and faith, but if you want to read all about it, you can. Um, so this lead document was brought to us by Politico. It was on the February 26 2021 um, posting. Uh, the name of the article is Diplomat Calls for Christian National States, Christian Nation States, and Rails Against Jews, if you want to look into it. Um, we'll have, again... Um, link to that and um, supporting uh, articles in the notes below so so from there we're gonna be moving on to something pretty close to that Um, speaking of what we can do or maybe can do for someone like that uh, cancel culture seems to be something that's cropping up quite a bit Arden, what do you what do we look into with this um, this Forbes article here? Uh, one way forward from a cancel culture to a accountability culture.
1: Uh, yeah, so um, we I think we all kind of maybe did a little bit of research and we couldn't really find exactly what the author of this article was canceled over, but he claims to have been canceled and seems to feel it was very unjustly so it seemed to really impede his life and his ability to, like, uh, was it to get a job or it impeded
0: his professional and personal life seemingly. He's writing for Forbes in 2020. So, hey, something's going right for him. Can't be doing so bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, that's kind of going in the direction that I wanted to, like, take this whole topic was that, you know, when we're looking at these uh, um, conversations about canceling, I think uh, it's really important that we are able to, talk about why this person was canceled. And it's kind of unfortunate that they hid that information because I think that's uh, a really critical point on this issue. Uh, you know, there's sort of, there might even be more than two phenomenon going on, but there's at least two where there's, you know, a situation where someone says something objectionable or, uh, you know, like we have a uh, Josh, what is that? Holly was his name. who's writing the book about a uh, big tech uh, and found himself, uh, the Simon and Schuster who was publishing the book decided they were going to withdraw from supporting him because of his, uh, uh, participation in the, uh, January six, uh, riots. Um, Mm. and, uh, what's interesting though, is that the, the company that picked up the publishing, the distribution of the book is the company that Simon and Schuster, uh, distributes for. So it seems like there's virtually, you know, no consequence, but yet we have this Josh Holly guy out here crying the woke mob is the reason for why I am, you know, in trouble. And it's like, well, actually, there's probably a very legitimate reason why your voice should not be platformed. It seems like you have some ideas that can lead to harmful ideologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but simultaneously, the other side of that phenomenon is situations where, you know, assuming that this uh, the author of this Forbes article is an honest actor, where he was genuinely affected by this and it actually disrupted his life. And, you know, he doesn't really seem to feel like he was given a chance to learn and grow and develop from his mistake. And he was just kind of uh, put in the, the what do you call it, the little things where you hang your head through for shame so everyone can throw tomatoes at your the face. The stocks. Ooh, the stocks.
3: He was put in uh, the yeah. stocks.
1: Well, can, oh, can, that's what can, you want. I,
3: I'd like to back up if I could just talk about, we hear a lot about cancel culture. And I think- let me put on my, let me put on a conservative hat on, not mine, but let's look, actually I have a hat here today so and that, this is, is not, is it, it going to be a
0: cowboy hat or is it going to be a fedora or it's, is it going to be, it's the hat the I wore
3: to, to come to the studio here and I didn't actually plan this, but no one's going to believe me.
2: Let so. the records show that this is his conservative hat.
3: This is, but it shouldn't be. It's a cowboy hat. Willie Nelson wears hat anyway. So <laughs> you're in Texas.
0: No, you're not. You're in California.
3: Not right now. Uh, right. No, there you go. <laughs> the complaint about cancel culture is that people shoot from the hip, yeehaw, and if they get a whiff of something that you said that they don't like, that they will ruin you permanently. They will not give you a chance to learn. They will not give you a chance to change uh, your mind, to make amends, that you are not only guilty of maybe a small infraction that offended somebody, whether or not you did it or not, and whether that was a reasonable offense or not, they will, they will trash you. If you make an off color joke that you know is racist or sexist or something, and you otherwise do not racist or sexist or other kinds of stuff, things that you were instantly a full blown SS Nazi Mengele piece of shit. Mm. And there's no recovering from that because the left, no, the right does it too, will come down so hard and so fast on that. You are fucking done. And that is not constructive. And what this dude said is, what I see the canceled person, well, actually that's my notes. Cancel culture defies the oneness of our shared experience. This is his words from that article and seeks to separate and radicalize us. It's about control rather than flow, denying versus accepting, destroying versus building. Cancel culture is ignorant of the win-win mentality that uplifts everyone, and it will continue to run rampant until it's exposed and released. So that's the complaint about cancel culture, that it's not constructive, that it is purely destructive.
0: Okay, so cancel culture, being canceled... uh, group organization um, you're being shut down or silenced for a perceived wrongdoing or offense i mean you're called out you're deplatformed your products are being boycotted or your organization's funding is being yanked because somebody heard you say something on twitter right is that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about i mean it's because it's it's when we see that I, I i could see that as as one thing but when a member of the house stands there and for an hour and a half declaims that the um, the legitimacy of the election that they are there to authorize, to to, um, count the votes on or to certify the votes on, if he spends his time in the house saying these lies, that should have some consequence. I mean, Uh, yes, he did get his book published after that, or has a publisher now, it's not as big as Simon & Schuster, even though Simon & Schuster is going to be the people that are actually going to be publishing it. It's a smaller house that they're working through. But, I mean, then then we have people like Lou Dobbs, who for, again and again, spreading lies and disinformation, and then all of a sudden summarily yanked without any kind of uh, thank you or goodbye or, well, oh, this is why we did it, it's just gone. Um, Mm -hmm. so how do we move from cancel culture to accountability, I guess?
2: Well, I mean, the, (laughs) It's the whole idea of the court of public opinion. It's even more stronger with the faster and faster way of the development of social media, how tweeting has gotten information out rapidly fast, everything in social media outlets and all social media outlets have just turned around the news cycle almost instantaneously. So yes, there lacks the critical eye, there lacks the skeptical mind behind what news gets out there and what is being said and what is not being said in defense or against whatever is put out in the news cycle from a congressperson, any other public figure, celebrity, a person that's just tweeting something racist or someone that is saying something out of context. I think we spoke about this a little bit pre, uh, pre-recording this show. Um, Arden, you use the word of nuance. It is, mm-hmm. it's very nuanced and situational. It definitely requires us to take a look at these situations with a critical and skeptical uh, mind and dial back and find out what is the source of all of this hubbub and find out why this person is being removed from all these platforms and what was the uh, inertia to have this all happen. Because if you take a person that just, I guess you can say, um, to put it in an example, a one-time offender that happens to say something that was, you know, teetered on being very racist and very um, hateful. And suddenly all of their business and um, platform and everything that that was supporting that individual is removed, then you did not allow I can see how, you know, and not applying any type of critical skepticism or any type of time to allow that person to right their wrong and dial back and make any type of correction and, um, you know, actively uh, change and move forward from that. But when you take on the opposite side, an individual or an organization that continuously, over time, repeatedly spreads out hate, spreads out bigotry, spreads out this rhetoric and continues to suppress, disenfranchise, discriminate, violently um, protest, cause insurrection over and over again, obviously you should be dismantled there should be consequences you should be removed from public eye because if we want to grow and move beyond this culture of hate and discontinue suppressing marginalized groups and individuals then these people need to find consequences to their action
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there is a line um and, and you can really it can't be defined to what kind of speech is and by by what kind of speech is being said you know and when it's when it's hate speech um oh i'm sorry when um when it's toxic uh, when it, it's it'll it its legitimate to de-platform neo-nazis um but you know it, it may be that um this bandwagoning that happens when uh, a momentum starts going it seems to build on its own it's a viral takeoff right and um how do we control for that um is it is it, a, is it a, a do we have the ability to shift the overton window so things are more in the center so that we um so we can see that those things that are Reaching far to the the radicalized, to the racist, to the bigoted, um, it doesn't go that far before the the regular social pressures, quote unquote, um, are are able to pull that back in. I I don't know.
3: Um, who who says I'm still wearing the hat? Who says what's too radical? I guess we do collectively say what's too radical, right? Yeah, it's where that Overton window is. It is, and. I would imagine that folks that are on the thin end folks who are farther away from their side would have to be more vocal, more, more, more loud, more active in order to draw the window away from the opposite side. But I think, you know, Hawley, the old president, Ted Cruz, Richard Spencer fucking Berg ran up there in the previous thing, these are, these are maybe easier for some people, but the complaint that a lot of people have about culture aren't these big names where there are, where there are political disagreements. It's about somebody in your office. It's about some family member. It's about some artist or celebrity, or maybe just some regular person, forget the artist and celebrity, some regular person in your life that has an opinion that you disagree with. There's a line, right? Where you say this person's so toxic, fuck them. I hope they die soon. You, in your head, you say that. You don't actually say that because you, you can't do that. You, people don't do that. But um, there's all. But there's most people aren't that far extreme. They're just saying something that's hurtful or vicious or stupid or careless. And the the problem with the cancel culture is that there's no way to recover, and therefore. Um, There's no dialogue, and therefore, there's polarization. And therefore, uh, people with these terrible opinions, whatever that terrible opinion might be, go underground, Mm. right? And it's still there.
0: (sighs) So a a climate of fear of intimidation. So um, people are are reluctant to engage with other people and be able to uh, have discourse with someone who might have a differing opinion and might have, you know. uh, Or they just go to parlor. Or they just go to parlor. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I, I was actually going to make a similar point to that—that that, like I kind of object to the notion that there's no no coming back from being canceled. I think maybe this is the case because most of the high profile cases of canceling are people who already have some sort of platform. But it seems to me to be the case that if anything, sometimes being canceled can boost your profile. I mean, you know, think of how. Every time J.K. Rowling tweets something transphobic, J.K. Rowling is trending in every country, you know, for like 24 hours. Like whether she's losing, you know, followers or whatever or not, like her name is being spoken more often. So I I just kind of find it doesn't really seem to be the case, at least in the things that I've seen, that when people are canceled, that they are removed from the public. I mean, I guess that is the case with like Trump or like some of his
0: cronies, but that we don't see that
1: level of canceling happening almost ever. I I
0: don't see anything from Ali Alexander that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. (laughs) He seems to be pretty well canceled, but then he said he is coming back in a few months. Sure. Mm. What
3: about Morgan Wallen? I've been hearing about Morgan Wallen. I don't like country music despite the cowboy hat. If it's not about dogs dying of natural causes or defending their, their owners or horses having a hard time. I don't care about it. I don't care about your hunting and fishing and loving every day. I don't care about, you know, twangy ass ballads. but I don't, I don't even know what Morgan Wallen sounds like, but he apparently used the N word and he's in the top with well, the top 100 country, top 100. He's doing great right now. Mm-hmm. And I wonder mm-hmm. if there's a, like a, a response like, Oh yeah, he's going to say that kind of stuff. He's got the Mm. guts to say the things that I can't say. Well, I'm going to support him. Maybe who knows how he used it, but, um, probably he's been canceled, but he's not suffering from it. He's been canceled. Right. Whatever the hell that
1: means.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Arden. I was just going to
1: say, I think kind of what canceled seems to be for a lot of these people is enduring a slew of of you know maybe overly aggressive tweets for the course of like a a week tops before it peters out yeah exactly exactly
2: yeah and yeah exactly that they endure um these celebrities and public figures endure a mile inconvenience for maybe a couple weeks to a month they find their own little um patreon and um alt platform social medias and they get back in the uh, get back on their horse and do something else, something else where they can be more of themselves. But um, going back to your original point, Johnny, just out of the eye of the celebrity, out of the eye of the public person, down to just the regular folk, the person that's in your, the person that's sitting next to you in your cubicle, the person that you drive um, in your car with, your family member that you meet on holidays or live with, whatever. I think in order to not exhibit that type of, I'll say this, in order to not have them or not push them towards seeking comfort in those extreme alt social media dark locations to where, you know, that mindset, that um, hateful rhetoric can be more exacerbated. Um, there's a way that in which, and a lot of people are not well practice in doing so, but we need to. There's a way in which you can approach a person to where you're not being argumentative, that you're not jumping down their throat and where you can try to find a level of civility and discourse to you can meet them in the middle, find some type of commonality and approach them in a way that you can continuously have a conversation with them and find the root cause of why they hold such ideals. Oftentimes, maybe nine times out of 10, throwing out a a, a ratio here, their judgment about a certain group or a certain policy or an action may stem from whatever upbringing, may stem from whatever exposure they have had from media or whatever type of false news that they were exposed to on social media. And they just need to be drawn away from that and shown, you know, what is the truth, but not just thrown at them or shoved down their throat, mm. have a conversation, understand their idea, listen, have have them speak to you first, have them initiate what their approach and idea is before you incite, you know, the true, I, I guess you could say the truth <laughs> of well, the facts.
3: Well, but there, therein lies, I think, also a problem. Hold on. Mm-hmm. Hold on. the fucking hat on uh as as a person of my particular philosophical and political and whatever social beliefs um of course i think i'm right like why wouldn't i however isn't that the problem right there everyone thinks they're right and the other and they all think that only if you got the proper education on this subject You would think about it the way I think about it. I think that maybe it's important to say, I want to go talk to this person. We're obviously having a conflict. Let's talk it out. And I've said this before. There's a dangerous chance that I might be, my mind might change. The subtlety, the nuance that we talked about earlier might lie somewhere in there. And not like, oh, only half the Jews should be exterminated. I don't mean like that, but I mean like there are, there are some examples where there is a reality that depending upon your position, you're just externalizing. You're not considering. Oh it,
0: yeah. Right? There are definitely times in, in where I think that um, say I'm at, I'm at work and I'm, I'm dealing with subcontractors or, uh, or, or whomever um, and they're throwing out um, dog whistles and bud buzzwords um, being one to really Show that they're a, a follower of the Lord, but it's not the appropriate social condition for them to do so. So they're 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 using the dog whistle. I need to be very careful because if if I can set myself up to that person will now um, actively dislike me if I come off as atheist, um, and um, so it kind of puts me into. You know, I need to protect myself. I can't open up, um, and if I if I ask them to open up, that might be in giving them an invitation that they're not um, that that I'm not really trying to offer. You know, one of the things that oh, I, I was wanted to take this to a completely different direction, but it's just way too much of a hard left turn. Um, but I don't know. I mean, so yes, how that conversation, but how do you have that conversation? In a safe space for everyone some of these conversations are pretty um charged let's say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but i mean it's like some of the people like if you're on the school board and you look at your other school board members facebook page and you see that they are putting racist or bigoted or transphobic or whatever the horrid thing is that they're putting out there, should that be made known vocally to the other members of that school board in a way that pressures them to change that person? You know, you could just go into the board and saying, I don't like what this person says, may not have as much power as you trying to start a Twitter war or um, or or flooding all of your social media with, oh my God, look what this person's saying. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a tool now that we have, or we, uh, there, there was for a long time, you know, the powerful have been able to cancel the little guy. Um, and, mm-hmm. and now it seems like, um, now that we have the, uh, the micro transaction culture, we have this, we can get, you know, 15 cents from everyone around the world for a cause if that's possible. Um, that's it's a little it's it's different but it's i mean it's still a tool i think that that can be used for for change in good you made me think of something multi
3: so that mark it on your calendar i'm thinking but so you talked about two different scenarios right um you see someone saying something crummy on the social media and either you tell other people on the school board or pta or whatever it might be or you start a a flame war somewhere, right? There's other options too. You can talk to them directly and try to make it personal because embarrassment is a, uh, is a, is, is an, is a great tool, but you shouldn't use it all the time. It's not the only tool we have sometimes, uh, approaching somebody individually and saying, Hey, I saw, so you said something on the, on your Facebook, tell me like, do that street epistemology thing, maybe approach them. What, what is that all about? Because it seemed kind of racist or transphobic or sexist or something like that. What, what did you mean by that? And then like, they might untie their own nut on top of that. It made me think of this. Um, if you are playing baseball, God, I'm using sports. If you're playing baseball and every time you swing, you like close your eyes and swing as hard as you can for a home run every single time and swing for every single ball probably going to strike out, right? You have to temper your swing. You have to aim a little bit. You've got to make sure it's the right swing. Sometimes you just need a bunt or a single to get on the base. Uh, i think I'm running out of baseball uh, metaphors here. Mm-hmm. But, but if we approach every problem with that, I have to get a home run every single time, every single pitch, we're going to have cancel culture forever and yeah. we will be talking past each other and and then what's what's I don't know it doesn't work because you can't trash grandma right you can't destroy your brother or sister or whatever your sibling because they said something wrong we destroy relationships we cause people to retreat we don't want them to retreat we want them to walk with us right along a, a path uh, so now i'm talking about hiking i'm sorry but but that's what that's
1: what it made me think of Mm-hmm. It kind of makes me relate back to what we were saying about a um, Berggren earlier where like, you know, if we could like, you know, say that he maybe is successfully compartmentalizing his uh, beliefs to the degree where he can effectively do his job and it doesn't contaminate the way he performs. In some sense at that point, you know, it's almost like, uh, do I want him to have those beliefs? No, absolutely not. They're terrible, bad beliefs, but assuming they don't impact other people. I don't have as much of an objection to that. And I think, you know, if we had a situation with like with this teacher where if they were able to treat their students with dignity and respect, you know, and to make sure that everyone gets a fair shot at learning, do I care so much what they say on Facebook when they go home? Not really, but I mean, it kind of comes back to that same thing though. How, how can we expect someone who holds a belief like that to not let it contaminate the way they interact with society um and yeah yeah yeah, For no, time,
2: yeah and, you know, it's, I'll, it's difficult because and i have so many examples of this because uh, you know i i'm a nurse and so uh, even this is actually kind of recent um well uh kind of recent as pre uh, covid um i was at a meeting um um uh, and you know, collectively a staff meeting. And uh, I brought up, it's actually something I brought up because it was a concern of, of a patient that I had um, where she, um, respectively she, she uh, was a transgender woman that identified as she, um, uh, but of course uh, on her uh, medical chart, it identified as, uh, well, um, the name uh, identified as, uh, I guess you could say, sexually mutual. And of course, to the uh, healthcare instructor, to them, they uh, visibly recognize her as appearing male. So um, unfortunately, um, and this occurred uh, per uh, what um, she had relayed to me, uh, twice that uh, this instructor had identified her Um, falsely twice. And so she felt uncomfortable, and uh, discontinued herself from that program because of the uncomfortableness she felt when she felt, um, you know, misrepresented. And so I brought this um, attention to the staff meeting, just to try to present a solution to correct the issue. And so, um, you know, Mutually, everyone agreed to a solution. We had to kind of work out the logistics of it and everything just so that it would be easier on the educator to kind of um, identify, you know, how to easily recognize their patients and how to properly address them. But, you know, um, amongst a small conversation, I could hear a, a couple of nurses on the opposite side of me kind of, not really whisper, but at a normal speaking tone kind of say well how do you not know what you are blatantly and with my organization um you you it you have to practice inclusion you have to demonstrate yourself by uh, practicing um providing safe and equal health care opportunity and uh, to all patients no matter uh, a religious association no matter sexual or uh, gender identification orientation whatever um no one should be misrepresented at all zero that is zero tolerance whatsoever and for me to hear that um that you know i was just it took my breath away i'm i mean i looked around no one was really bothered by the comment but for me that shook me especially with you know we recently gone through that kind of inclusionary training and everything so back to the initial point for someone, and I know of this nurse and she is of a religious Christian background. So for someone to hold and know, I know of their religious background and idea and to suggest and say, oh, how does a person not know who they are? It's, it's obvious to me that it is a very thin line struggle for a person to not remove themselves from what their faith tells them versus what they have to do on the job. And but, too often, but, I am met with the question of what, how you handle a situation of a transgender person on the job yeah. as a medical professional. It's easy for me, obviously, but yeah,
3: Jenna, this is a great example of that nurse needs to have conversations with a transgender person. Yes, right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you before, but it's no, true. No, um, mm-hmm. because it's an alien concept based upon wherever that nurse was and their upbringing to the present moment. It's incomprehensible. Frankly, it's it's fairly incomprehensible to me because I don't have that experience, but I hear people saying things and I believe them. Right. But I've been, I've encountered people, ex- communicating their experience and I can see the sincerity on their face and talk about specific details about stuff they went through. And it's like, Oh, Hmm. They're a liar, they're a really good liar, or I just, my my world just got a little bit bigger. That there's mm-hmm. more variety in the human experience than just mine, mm-hmm. right? And if we were to go and quit, go and cancel that nurse, as opposed to try to, with little breadcrumbs, with little cross-shaped breadcrumbs or hosts or whatever it is that nurses like, Christian nurses, over to a person who can have a, con- what do they, I don't know. Jenna, you were a Christian nurse. What what would have been a good trail of breadcrumbs to lead you over a to giant talking?
2: cross cookie.
3: Okay, in the break <laughs> room. Red <laughs> wine,
1: yeah,
3: and red, some red wine, red and red have wine. a sit down, <laughs> and then <laughs> because people have a natural compassion wire in their brain, right? And when you make a connection of like the common humanity, right? It's like oh, I remember, I, I remember being like. Temporarily without lodging, and I met this dude, and he put me up in his place. And I had bumped into him a lot on campus. This is umpteen years ago, and he's like, "Well, we're all brothers in Allah," and I'm like, "Well, that's nice. That's a nice sentiment. Thank you." And I slept on his couch for two, three days, and I don't agree with him, but he had a he had a he resonated with uh, with some compassion with me, and you know that was a moment, and we need more moments like that, but we have to be ready that we're gonna be offended a little bit. If it's for a greater good to have, you know, but that means tempering your desire to take a big, fat swing at someone, right? Verbally.
0: One of the things I've heard um, some hosts say is, I will take what you said in the sentiment, in the feeling that it was presented, that it was given, you know, so they can say the something that they are maybe saying on a backhanded or offhanded comment, backhand comment, whatever. And you're like, I'll take that in the, in the spirit that it was given. Um, so might, like you were saying, you know, with uh, that, he's just saying, you know, we're, we're all friends here. We, we all need each other to, to survive and get along. And, and that was his way of expressing it. It seems like um, another way of expressing things is by writing, you know, that, So with that, we're going to be moving on to our next segment. Uh, This will be Looking Back. Looking Back. So today we're looking back on Michel de Montaigne. Montaigne. He was born February 28th, 1533. He was the first person to write in the style and, and to promote the style of writing um, known as the essay, the creator of the essay. This guy, you could say he was the very first blogger uh, in, in his writing style. Uh, his, he, his essays effortly mixed um, serious intellectual thoughts and humorous anecdotes. Um, he's influenced many, many writers, Shakespeare, Descartes, Asimov, among many others. So he's done some interesting things. Um, he was mayor of Bordeaux, France um, in a horrid, horrid time. Um, the Blue Plague decided to hit Bordeaux when he was there or, or just leaving. And um, he had a chateau to uh, escape to, so um, no worries on his part at that point, but still. Um, yeah, and then that was also, I, I get to learn, when I learned about him, I also learned about the, the wars of religion. Oh my goodness! From lovely, yeah, 1962 yeah. to 1998, the uh, the Protestants and the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, going at it. 1962, uh, on. yeah, fifteen, right? <sighs> Thank you. Sorry, my apologies.
3: <laughs> uh, so for, I survived the the religious wars of
0: 1962. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies. 15, 1562. This, yeah, this is the this is the French Renaissance we're talking about. Uh, so yeah, um, yeah, in that war, that was a horrid conflict that he was trying to be a uh, to mediate or to mitigate some of the stuff. What are they, they called? Him a politique, which I believe is a slur. Politique. Um, yeah. <laughs> Having national unity of greater importance than religious sects. Yeah. Not to so be confused religious. with
3: religious sects.
1: Mm. Mm. I'd like to know how that slur it sounds like a good thing to me. Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: Um, magic underwear, are we talking? I didn't know we were going to go into Mormonism. You <laughs> know what I was thinking of. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> but no, I mean, he, he advocated for um, um, tolerance in government and, um, and that... Um, Anyway, uh, did you, ha- anyone else had uh, anything to say about um, Michelle? He seems like a, a very interesting person. I definitely have some quotes that I want to get to, but I wanted to open yeah. the, the floor up a little bit.
2: I know something interesting. I think he, correct me if I'm wrong, he had identified himself as a deist, but mm-hmm. most have maybe thought he would an atheist, maybe. Um, and... I know, I know through that kind of feud, um, religious feud during, you know, 1922, um, you know, it, it would have been safe for a person to at least take some type of subtle side of religiosity, I guess you could say, just to, you know, escape um, persecution. Mm-hmm. So I um, I found that quite interesting.
0: Yeah, well, when you have two major religious factions that are actually killing each other in your town yeah. or around your town, yeah, you yeah. may want to, you know, not not say you both are wrong at the same time. Yeah,
3: that, that was code, wasn't it, for those times? Even through the uh, American colonial period, you're a deist. That may or may not mean that you're uh, an atheist. It depends. Mm-hmm. It, it takes more than that. Um, I, I don't want to say that all of there's I, I just recently listened to uh, Andrew Seidel's The Founding Myth, Mm-hmm. And recommend it to everybody out there. Uh, oh, yeah. He's the director of strategic something or other at the Freedom from Religion Foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And he talks about that in his book that Deism was code for, at at best, maybe ambivalence for religion, or maybe true Deism. We have Deism. Deists call the Colin shows. Um, right. He, he something that we need to remember about him, and it's sort of rub me the wrong way, but I guess what would I expect from someone who had the freedom to be able to write essays at that time was he was filthy rich. He was. And he was able to just ditch his job at the very end during the middle of a, of a pandemic and just scram out to the country and then go ahead and invent a whole new way of, of human communication I guess I kind of wished he had been a a humanitarian and a working class hero. But in those days, there wasn't a lot of wiggle room of free time, I imagine. So, of course, he did that. He was protecting his family when he did that. Can't really fault him for that. Science was really not much better than wishful thinking at that time. So it would have been a death sentence to stick around, I would Mm think. Yeah. Um, yeah, Arden, did you have something that you wanted to say about Montaigne?
1: Uh, I was actually going to make this in comparison you just did of the the founding fathers, uh, kind of taking a position that like, uh, you know, maybe the educated person might take a deist stance, whereas like the the less educated seem to need religion or something, which I don't necessarily agree that. I'm not saying that religious people can't be educated, but in the founding myth, that was kind of the the interpretation that I understood was the founding fathers tended to perceive that as educated people, they didn't need religion as, uh, closely as maybe someone who's less educated would. And, uh, it seems to be sort of, uh, Montaigne's position as well. I think there was one quote, um, men of simple understanding, a uh, little inquisitive and little instructed make good Christians, which I thought was, uh, really interesting. And I think your comment on it kind of being almost like a, like a classist kind of, it's hard because I feel like he's kind of right. in a lot of the things he says, but he's also incredibly like arrogant and like, You're kind correct. of seeming, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's in, in reading the founding myth, not that this is a, you know, book report on the founding myth, but that was something <laughs> that kept on coming up over and over again, the founding yeah. fathers, having this attitude where like, well, we're, we're rich, we're smart, we're educated. And the rabble, the mouth breathers, the dirt farmers, they need religion because mm-hmm. they're going to rape and murder and steal if they don't have it. Cause they're somehow incapable of higher thought on mm-hmm. some level, mm-hmm. um, which is just really shitty, but, uh, If we think about how much time it could take a person, a working person in the Middle Ages to, because of a lack of education and time and resources and an infrastructure, to construct their own morality or a morality that's consistent with humanism outside of one that they were just beaten over the head with every Sunday at the church they had to go to, I can see where Montaigne would have thought that.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean – the, the guy was, was sent to school as a child into Bordeaux, France, from the chateau that he was born in, um, his family chateau. And he learned, what, Latin before he learned French? And he was fluent in Greek and, and had learned all the, the ancient philosophers. So, yeah, I, I could see that in uh, 1562. Um, that might be uh, something that is... How you could you could look down on on someone in that point in time, but man, some of these some of these quotes though that he has just yeah so good.
3: I went I went did you want to did you want to read off a quote because I I had one set some one thing I wanted to say about Montaigne, but I would rather hear yeah. a quote that's good. Yeah, uh, a, how, a how about one?
0: man is certainly stark mad. He cannot make a flea, yet he makes gods by the dozen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> That sure doesn't seem like a like a theist to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Something that that I that what I wanted to point out was um I went to https://plato.stanford.edu/entries/montaigne/ links are in the description. Never mind all that. And it talked about the way he approached philosophy. And he, what I saw there which is a great website. Check it out. They got something on everybody almost rejected. He rejected the theoretical or speculative way of philosophizing that prevailed under the scholastics ever since the middle ages. So we're talking like Aristotle and Aquinas, according to him, science does not exist, but only a general belief in science. Now he's talking about Aristotelian style science or uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas style. Petrarch had already criticized the scholastics for worshiping Aristotle as their God. Siding with the humanists, Montaigne developed a sharp criticism of science. Um, He said that uh, it is merely a practice and business of science, which is restricted to the university and essentially carried out between masters and their disciples. The main problem of this kind of science is that it makes us spend our time justifying as rational the beliefs we inherit instead of calling into question their foundations. It makes us label fashionable opinions as truth instead of gauging their strength, whereas science should be a free inquiry. It consists only in gibberish discussions on how we should read Aristotle or Galen. And, and I, if I may like, bring this into the present, the difference between, let's say, philosophy slash theology, where we're just imagining and cogitating all of these things, something that we see oftentimes with the apologists and the complaints against the some apologists, let me say that some apologists, because some of them are pointing to different scientific concepts and trying to nail it down, and those are the ones that I I'm really want to listen to, not the ones that are coming up with these pie in the sky imaginings, right? Ones that are actually angering it in in the world we exist in, and then trying to distill from that uh, a truth, right? Um, so, yeah. Montaigne,
0: mm-hmm. Montaigne. So
2: yeah,
1: I, I won't lie. I, uh, after hearing some of those quotes and I read that, I went and bought a, a ninety-nine cent collection of his essays for my oh, Kindle because no. I was like, these are really interesting. I want to, wow. I want to hear what else he has to say.
3: Huh. The the I looked it up and it's like eight hundred and some pages, nine hundred some pages are his collected essays. So you probably were smart by buying a ninety-nine cent one because that's a lot of reading.
1: Yeah, that's
0: why I brought it on condole much deeper. Mm-hmm. All right. So that will do it for Montaigne. And um, our last segment to- for today, I'm going to end on a high note. Um, how can we, when we see this bigotry, when we see this cancel culture, how can we bring it back together and how can we have a discussion that brings people together? And for that, we want to talk about Daryl Davis. Um, Jenna, will you inform us a little bit, educate us a little bit on Mr. Davis?
2: Oh, happy to. And this is something I personally love to harp on um, as a moderator in our the fan discord for the ACA and something I kind of had some similarity with Daryl Davis on as far as having civility in our discourse and our conversations with people that disagree with us. And so um, um, in reflection with Darrow Davis, um, there was an interview that was done um, uh, with him um, around this time last year. Um, this author um, definitely um, um, brilliantly expresses the importance and really asks, poses questions to Davis about um, the civility of his discourse with um, approaching um, KKK members. And just kind of just a brief synopsis. So Daryl Davis is, Uh, an active musician. Uh, He's also an author and a lecturer. Um, He describes himself as uh, an impetus for uh, KKK members. Basically, he does not drive to uh, deconvert or convert uh, uh, these affiliates um, from their hate, but poses as that primer to let them recognize um, what their hateful thoughts and um, actions are and let them um, engage in that move towards um, being away from the, themselves by being engaging, being civil, um, meeting them in the middle, something we've already um, discussed and what I mentioned early on, just meeting them in the middle and recognizing what they can share and bond over and letting them know that, you know, your hate and approach and what you identify me as, as a Black man, um, um, Davis, I'm speaking as, um, is, you know, blatantly different. um, And you don't know uh, a single thing about me. So let me um, let me have you learn about me and let me help you develop different opinions and ideas about me so that you know, I can help enact that change. And he does it brilliantly. Um, he, well, as I mentioned, he effectively inspired more than 200 KKK members to denounce their um, allegiance to the organization and turn against hate. And he, um, as I mentioned, demonstrates himself as a catalyst for change. And all he simply was, um, he didn't actively um, try to initiate um, and go out um, to do this. Um, he just set out to just pose a question of why do you hate me? And when, uh, when you don't even know me and, <laughs> you know, he had a, bit of a, a privileged upbringing, um, he, uh, grew up in a military family, they traveled and, um, much of his learned upbringing was, um, abroad. So, he was very acclimated to diversity of, of, you know, a white and a different ethnicity of people. So, when uh, around the times that he did come back to the States, he definitely was met with, you know, segregation and discrimination, uh, totally opposite pole ends of how um, other countries were at the time um, when he was growing up in school and everything versus how it was here. So, he was already. Well, equipping himself to approaching um, that dialogue and knowing how he can approach people in order to affect the kind of change that he already saw in those other countries that were maybe 10 or 15 years ahead of our time at at that Mm -hmm. point in time. So, and, and, you know, to his benefit, there is a documentary that lays out his story completely that was released a few years back. Um, There is a link to the website of the documentary that we will put in the description, of course, so uh, all of our viewers can actively go to it. It is, I've seen a portion of it myself. It's brilliant. (laughs) Um, The way that um, he just sits down and um, just affects this, You know, it's just a conversation that he just has. It's nothing he tries to, he's not enacting any type of fallacy arguments. He's not trying to say, you know, this is done to my people. This is, you know, obviously there is some wrong and hurt in the Black community that stems in our American history, but he doesn't approach them with that. I know there is enough of that talk and rightfully so. But there, there is a way in which he approaches it with brilliantly. Um, it mm-hmm. is it's a fascinating uh, documentary, and I, you know, I condone anyone to go out and watch it. It is actually available on Netflix too. So, yeah, Daryl Davis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: I think be great. Um, you had a really interesting point there about, um, you know, like the privilege that he did have coming from like being. Um, and I think it's a really interesting point there because I think. Um, you know, as a minority person, I definitely have noticed this in conversations I've had with like trans folks too, that being a minority person in those conversations, you have, you know, you can really be an asset in uh, helping someone to understand how their beliefs are are harmful. But I think it's also important to note that, you know, that is so much easier to do when you come from slightly more privilege, you know, like I, I, as a white trans woman who comes from, you know, a decent upbringing with and family background like I think I have a lot of steps ahead where when I'm going into conversations with bigots I'm maybe carrying well I almost certainly am carrying less baggage than you know other trans people who might be involved in that conversation and I think like it's such a beautiful and amazing concept I just think it's important to not uh I could totally see a situation where a bigot would be like, oh, well, why don't you just be like Daryl Davis? He has conversations with people like me, you know? And it's kind of like, well, it's not the, the the purpose of the minority person to deconvert you. But I do think that this is a really beautiful story and um, that it really shows the power that, you know, we can have coming into those conversations when you're yeah. and marginalized. I
2: will, yes, and I will add that. And I mean, he didn't have i dove a little deeper he didn't have absolute success mind you there were um mm. uh, of course those that tur- absolutely turned him away um, and maybe those that um, maybe sat and listened to him may have felt a little bit of a change but you know went and dive um, right back into um, the old ways and that mm. happened uh, it's trial and error you know um it, not abs- it's there are no absolutes you just try and try again it's it's the, um, effectiveness of the, uh, the conversation, um, mm-hmm. you know, the approach has to be the same, um, and just, you know, being as civil and, uh, respectful as possible, um, is the most effective versus, um, the vitriol and the hate and, you know, the yelling and the back and forth. So, I mean, that's
3: yeah. What's your action. goal? What's your goal yeah. when you have these difficult yeah. conversations? Is it, to go in there and own the other side is have you drunk your own coolie to the point where you know, you're going to win every time, or do you have to go in with the idea that you might not be successful, but you're going in there with, with good heart, a good attempt to try to make a connection with a person. And I think that's to go back to our cancel culture conversation. That's what he did. These people had to look at him, this cool dude, right. Whose music they liked and whose attitude was, He's probably very charismatic and contagious. And they had to say, oh, you're not as much of a human as I am. You belong on a lower order. No, no, no. It really challenged people. Mm-hmm. Like, well, maybe I'm really wrong. And it took time. At no point does it say, oh, I had one conversation with, with Mr. Davis, and then suddenly I, I gave him my robe. It probably took a bunch of conversations. It took some going home, laying uh, down, a, in your bed at night staring at the ceiling going on long walks and thinking everything that i believe is bullshit on this subject yeah, right yeah. and if he had just come out swinging uh, or thinking that he's going to have one knockout uh conversation it wouldn't have happened it's slow and steady wins the race
2: not only that but he's just one person uh it's just one person, one-on-one, um, trying, uh, uh, ch- trying to achieve to change the minds of a different individual. That individual that now has that changed mind has to take that and bridge it to every other person he has once harbored hate for. So he has to, or he or she or whoever, has to um, have that mindset like, okay, that one person is an example. Who knows if they also take that same example and apply it to anyone else. Right, they may just say, "Oh, well, he's an exception. That's that's my black friend. I don't hate all black people. That's an example yeah. of my black friend right there."
3: Mm-hmm. I grew I grew up with uh, Bobos like that. Like, oh yeah, Tony's okay. He's mm-hmm. black, but he's okay. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm like, yeah, what the hell's yeah. wrong with yeah, exactly. you? Exactly, right? Jesus. My, you know, it's, it's it's a no true Scotsman fallacy. And you know, one thing that I, I read um, in these articles um, from the NPR, um, how one man convinced. 200 Ku Klux Klan members to give up their robes. Um, he had mentioned that he went and he studied the Ku Klux Klan. He went in armed with the knowledge that he could, all the knowledge he could on understanding what they believe, how they believe it, where, what their history was. So when he was having these conversations, he was able to present to these Ku Klux mem- members as knowledgeable, as mm-hmm. can, can, converse with them on their same level and still then um, show how uh, you know show the fallacies in in some of their thinking and and then show um, some of those so that is uh, one of the things that I really took away from this is that he um, he took the time and effort to um, to arm himself properly uh, to go into this and and to do some really good work
1: I, I think more than that too I, I really like the way he talks about, um, you know, trying to come approach these situations with a really strong sense of self in that, like, you know, when they're being hateful, not to take it personally. And I believe, I didn't pull out the quote, but it was something to the degree, it, uh, is what they say offensive? Yes, but am I offended by it? No. And I thought that was, that was so, so poignant of like, you know, these people are probably at this way because of the totality of their experiences, not because of some personal gripe they have with you. And those judgments are, you know, should yeah. probably be taken with that in mind.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, does anyone have any final thoughts on Mr. Davis? We're starting to run a little low on time.
3: Uh, <laughs> let's um, make sure that we mention the name of his book. It's clan destined relationships. That's spelled funny, um, but don't worry. It'll be in the description. Uh, and can I say a quote? He's got a bunch of quotes in here that are really great. Um, he says, people must stop focusing on the symptoms of hate. That's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. We've got to treat it down to the bone, which is ignorance. The cure for ignorance is education. You fix the ignorance, there's nothing to fear. If there's nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. If there's nothing to hate. There's nothing or no one to destroy. Mm-hmm. So more information, conversations, and you know, those who can safely have those conversations, because not everyone can, mm-hmm. um, consider. please consider doing it.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will. I don't know if I mentioned the title of the documentary. It's called Accidental Courtesy. And of course, that link for it will be in the description. But I wanted to share one of the really profound quotes um, that I loved um, based on the interview that he had. Um, And it goes, there is an opportunity for you to plant a seed. As long as you nourish that seed, you are bridging that gap. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, you will find something in common. And if you spend 10 minutes, you'll find... And that was one of the major profound quotes that I liked um, based off his...
0: Yeah, thank you. So we covered covered quite a bit. Blogging bigotries backfire, or did they? About Fritz Bergren consequence culture when saying things might cost you money. Um, We looked back on... Michelle de Montaigne, and I think Daryl Davis definitely is a great um, example of a step in the right direction. So with that, um, I want to say thank you for all of the hosts that joined me here today. um, And for all of you watchers and listeners out there, um, please, um, if you'd like, and if you can, support us. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the nonprofits. Um again tell us what you like, what you dislike at nonprofits at atheist community.org. You can find us on Discord and on Facebook. And I really want to thank all my guest hosts here and in, in um, joining me here for this another edition of the nonprofits. So thank you everybody and see you later. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>